Thank you, Henry. Praise team for leading us in worship this morning. There's an old tradition in the church that hasn't happened yet this morning. I'm going to say he is risen, and you're going to say as loud as you can, he is risen indeed. So let's do it. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Thank you, Paul. That was awesome. Did everyone hear what he did as loud as he could? Let's do it one more time as loud as you can. What do we have to be, be afraid of here? Let's shout it out. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. That is why we're here. And that's not just why we're here on Easter. That's why we're here every Sunday. Because every Sunday, we are here in the reality of the resurrection. In fact, we have nothing if not for the resurrection. This Sunday is one day out of the year where we focus on it, but we should be living in the reality of it every single day. Every Sunday is cause to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior and Lord. This morning... I'm going to first off just say that uh, when you've got a week like I had, preparation time is at a premium. And so some of the things that came together in short order, I'm just going to say I was praying and I pray that the Lord was leading me as I share this with you this morning because where I was directed was not in a typical direction for an Easter message, let's just say. It went in sort of an opposite direction almost while focused on the same thing. Because I all of a sudden got to thinking, how does the enemy view Easter? You know the enemy I'm referring to, the enemy of our souls. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 12, kind of clarifies this for us. There were exhorted by Paul, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is the enemy that Jesus was waging war against that day on the cross of Calvary and the days leading up to it. And so he is also the enemy of our souls, and he was doing everything he could to stop our salvation from being secured. And so how did he he view the events of Easter, and that is where I want to draw our attention this morning, to view Easter from a slightly different perspective. So would you bow with me, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you know my heart. You know what you have spoken uh, to me in this week, what you have laid on my heart and mind this morning. And so I pray, Lord, that as we examine Easter from a different perspective this morning, I pray that by it you would give us a fresh insight and understanding into your grand scheme from the beginning of creation right through to this very day and how you have been achieving and securing salvation for countless people, even in the face of such opposition, your master plan was not only uh, not stopped in any way, but it was fulfilled perfectly by your sovereign will. And so, Lord, I pray that for each one here today, help us to set aside our distractions this morning and focus on what you would have us receive here. I pray that you would energize me once more, Lord, and give me the power I need to speak this word clearly. May they be yours, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. As the eerie darkness descended at midday, shrouding the gloriously horrific spectacle of crucifixion from view, He knew exactly what it meant. This was it. Game over. 
check, and mate. From his vantage point nearby, he watched closely and with eager and ever-growing exultation as drip by drip and drop by drop, his victory was drawing ever closer. But still, he didn't want to get ahead of himself just yet. Keeping his guard up, ready for anything, ready for all-out warfare. For in the distance, he could see the twelve legions nearby, ready to be summoned. He knew that at just one word from the dying man on that middle cross, one word they would fly into action. Twelve legions was overkill. They would never need so many. One of those fearsome warriors can foul an earthly army in a single night. It had been done before. But twelve legions stood by that night, and he kept a wary eye on them. Then the man on the cross demanded everyone's attention. All eyes were on him. Would that word be uttered? Would the legions spring forth? But as one ragged breath followed another, the man on the cross, the man did not speak the word. He did not give the command. And then with a tremendous effort, he pushed himself upward against the nails, filling his his lungs with air one more time. He called out in agony and in ag- anguish. His voice echoed through the darkness. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he knew this time there would be no rescue. This time there would be no last second escape, no way off of that wretched cross except through death itself. Oh, as hard as it was to believe, victory was finally, at long last, within his grasp. He had finally conquered the king himself. The creator of life was about to taste death. Oh, the delicious irony. And best of all, it was his doing. His chest swelled with pride at the thought, and with grim satisfaction, His mind raced backward through the countless battles that had finally culminated in this, his glorious hour of victory. You see, the plan for this day had been a long time in the making, and it most certainly had not come easily. Every time that he had believed he had gained the upper hand, his position was somehow undermined at the very last moment. For every carefully crafted move, there had been a skillful counter. Every cleverly laid trap, there was always made a way of escape at the last second. And through it all, the king himself had always remained elusive, at a distance, protected behind his legions, his mighty legions. With no end in sight, they guarded his throne with zeal. Of course, the battle had already begun aeons ago, with his initial setback, we'll call it. Looking back now, he could plainly see that his initial strategy had been overly ambitious and therefore destined to fail. To attack the king head-on had been a rash decision, one that he had paid for dearly. To be cast down, humiliated before his troops, thrown to the earth like a dirty dishrag, the humiliation, the embarrassment was greater than words could express. He, the archangel of heaven, cast aside like nothing, He vowed one day to get his vengeance. He would reclaim his own exalted status on his terms this time, no matter how long it took. 
the king would pay for humiliating him. And so, like any good general, like any good general does after an initial defeat, no setback, he reassessed, regrouped, and reorganized his forces. A new strategy was set. Rather than attacking the king directly, he would attack those whom the king loved most, his precious humans. While the attack had been a brilliant success, exceeding even his own lofty goals, the king had been caught completely off guard by this tactic. He had foolishly left those simple and naive creatures with no other defense than the single instruction, Obey me. Of course, they had proved no match for his cunning. Cleverly disguised, he had only to plant one seed of doubt, and with barely any argument, they quickly disobeyed the king's one solitary command. Don't eat the fruit. The consequence of this act of rebellion was sudden and devastating. It was almost as though the whole creation was coming unraveled. It shuddered and groaned in agony. The birds, animals, and even the very earth itself had felt it. They felt the curse descend and they were filled with dread. And for a brief and glorious moment, he had even entertained the thought that perhaps at that moment the king might just call it quits right then and there. Just give up on this little pet project of his with these so-called children. After all, hadn't they already shown? Hadn't they shown how pathetically weak they were? Just one simple test, one simple instruction, and they had failed miserably. They were not worthy of the title, children of the king. And besides, in comparison to him, In comparison to his glory, his majesty, his power, his beauty, his wisdom, they were nothing in comparison to him. He, an archangel, they nothing more than toads on the road to be squished underfoot, or at best pawns to be removed from the game board without a second thought. Oh, how he hated them. Oh, how he detested them. How the king would fawn all over them, spend time with them. Surely the king would finally see his mistake. Finally, he would see that he had made a terrible misjudgment by placing his image on such pathetically weak and detestable creatures. But once again, he had underestimated the king. For though the humans had disobeyed, though they had filled his heart with so much needless pain, his patience and love for those foolish creatures was beyond his comprehension. Why? For rather than destroying them as they deserved, the king treated them with mercy. He gently clothed them and gave them a promise that one day, through the seed of the woman, he would crush and defeat their enemy. Him, the serpent, ha! He would see about that. Now he had an angle. He had a way in that he could exploit to his full advantage. He would simply thwart the king's plan at every turn by turning those pathetic little image-bearing children of his against him once more. Now they had a taste for rebellion. Now they had a, a knowledge of sin and good and evil. And now he was sure that they would need little convincing to join in with him. And oh, how easily he accomplished just that. 
In the ages to follow, he had one victory after another. In wholesale fashion, the human nations as a whole rejected the king. They became obsessed with carnal pleasures and bloodthirsty violence. The earth was filled with it. And at one point, he very nearly succeeded in forcing the king into giving up on his pet project altogether. And finally, so disgusted by their sin and rebellion, so hurt was he by their their constant rejection of him, that he decided to just wipe the earth clean of them. And if it hadn't been for that one man and his boat, he would have done it too. But the king was not ready to admit defeat just yet. So he came up with another tactic in the age to follow. A tactic of calling out his so-called special people, chosen from amongst the nations. Special. He'd show them, and he had. They hadn't proven to be any more of a challenge than the first special children had been way back in the garden. Like a lion toying with his prey, he had enjoyed planning their demise, making it as painful and prolonged as possible. Oh, sure, the king had kept trying to woo them back to himself, trying to get them to listen, sending prophet after prophet, king after king, to get their attention. And just when it looked like he had them back, Just like it looked like they were going to obey, every time, all he had to do was use the exact same traps and temptations he had used countless times before. One whisper, the king is holding out on you. You'll have more fun my way. Follow me, pleasure is waiting for you on my path. Power is waiting for you on my path. And with a few whispers, they'd all come running. The pathetic humans were nothing if not predictable. Even when they had finally looked like they were obeying, doing things right on the outside, even then he always made sure to keep their minds distracted and their prideful hearts looking down on everyone else around them. Oh, they were God's chosen, everyone else, not so much. But now everything had changed. In the next age, the promise was coming closer to fulfillment, and he saw it coming. The king himself had entered the field of play. He always wondered if the king would go to such great lengths. He didn't think it would be true, but here it was. For reasons unknown to him, he entered the world. But inexplicably, he did not enter the field in his power and glory. He did not enter with his great celestial armies by his side. No, inexplicably, incomprehensibly, he actually took on the form of one of those pathetic children of his. He'd even gone so far as to become like them in every single way, taking on their weak flesh that was so prone to temptation, their frail form that was born under the curse of death and so easily killed and cast aside in the grave. What a terrible mistake. If this was the master plan that the king had spoken of way back in the garden, the one to crush his head, he had made a great miscalculation, one that would soon prove fatal. It had been so easy. But now he realized he was going to be put to the test. For even with his glory and power set aside, the king was no easy target. After his initial plan to kill him immediately as a child had failed, he decided to take a wait-and-see approach. 
He saturated the area, the region, with his legions of dark angels. Demons tormenting and possessing as many of those weak humans as possible. And then the day had come when he had finally squared off head to head with him in the wilderness. But one after the other, all of his best temptations had failed. Even when he had offered the king all of his precious children's kingdoms, the entire, the entire lot of them, for just one little bow, one little show of respect that he deserved, he refused. Well, he would show him, and he left him for a time, but he would be back, and he was. But what did all of that matter now? The king should have taken that sweetheart of a deal, the easy way out, but he didn't. And now he was paying the full price for that decision. Once again, the frontal attack had failed, but no matter, subversion was his specialty. Infiltrating the king's hand-picked group of disciples had proved more difficult than he had initially anticipated. The king's divine presence and miracle-working power increased their faith and obedience more quickly than almost any other humans he had ever encountered. Of course, they weren't quite in the same category as Job or Moses just yet. But the signs were worrisome. He knew that even the strongest and most faithful humans always had a fatal flaw, a weakness. He had found King David's after all. Women, beautiful women, they always enticed him. He had found his weakness. He had exploited it. But he knew that he had to act quickly. The king was simply routing his forces at every turn. Everywhere he went, in terror, they receded before him. They would run at his command. Even one of his strongest legions had been humiliated. They had fled into a herd of pigs, run off a cliff and drowned. Something had to be done to stop him. But then, there it was, his opening. His keen eye had almost missed it, for it had been in such an oh-so-subtle way But he had seen Judas's hand dip into his master's purse. But when it had returned, it was not all there. He had kept a few coins for himself. Oh, of course, of course, it would be the good religious Jewish boy, Judas Iscariot, the weak link in the chain, he who harbored greed in his heart. He would be exploited. And from that moment on, the plan unfolded like clockwork. The religious leaders, he had them already in his pocket. Their pride had already been wounded by Jesus' miracle-working power and his sharp tongue. His rebukes of them so often, they needed very little persuasion. Judas, though, he had required a more careful approach. For though he was greedy, he still loved his rabbi and would not betray him easily. But from long ages of experience, he knew, he knew that every greedy heart has its price. A price so enticing that it would willingly betray those closest to them. A price that they would betray their own flesh and blood. He knew he just had to find it. And so masterfully, using all of his skill and cunning, honed over the ages, he had preyed upon Judas' greed by utilizing another powerful temptation. Disillusionment. Disillusionment. The whispers had sounded so harmless, 
in Judas's ear, so innocent. What are you getting out of all of this walking around day after day? Does your rabbi really expect you to keep following him forever without pay? If he is who he claims to be, then why is he taking so long to establish his kingdom? You do want him to be king, don't you? Think of how all the people will prosper under him. Think of how you will prosper under him. How does chief financier of the realm sound? Oh, how generous you will be able to be. Oh, how you will bless the poor. Think of how the king will praise you then. But he's taking too long. Your rabbi needs a little push in the right direction, something to force his hand. And why not earn a little extra for your efforts? How does 30 pieces of silver sound? And there it was. Finally, the breakthrough. The price was set. The deal was struck. And little did foolish little Judas know that by giving the devil an inch, by giving him a foothold, he was about to take a mile. He had opened wide the door of his heart, and Satan knew it was ready. He could take possession of it at the correct time, but timing would have to be perfect. He had other players to consider as well. King Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Roman soldiers, they would need little coaxing. He had long ago helped nurture their thirst for power, blood, and unusual acts of cruelty. Oh, they would willingly play their part. The Jewish people... They would prove no more difficult. Sure, they followed him now, so long as he was doing miracles for them. They loved the healings and the feedings, but he knew how fickle their hearts were. Once they were stirred up enough by the religious leaders, oh yes, they too would be calling for the rabbi's blood soon enough. It all unfolded just as he foresaw. The night arrived. All of the pieces were in place, and once again, the plan proceeded like clockwork. One moment of doubt remained. One moment of truth. Which way would the night go? It had happened as he lurked outside, watching the upper room that night. The king was behaving strangely, almost as though he knew something was up. Something was looming. For he had wrapped a towel around his waist, took a wash basin, and he began washing his followers' filthy feet. Oh, he had nearly gagged at the sight. What was the king doing? As if becoming one of these pathetic humans wasn't bad enough, why willingly degrade himself as a slave any further? Oh, he had seen him glorified, magnified on the throne, and here he was on the floor on his knees washing feet. Oh, he had to save the king from himself. Then he had come up to Judas. And Jesus looked up into Judas's eyes. Could the king see the greed and betrayal that lurked? He couldn't be sure. Judas' lip trembled. And Jesus looked at him and then, just like the others, bent over and washed his feet too. Judas kept it together. Would he break? No. He wouldn't. The moment passed. Judas remained silent. A short time later, as they shared around the table, the king revealed that he did in fact know of Judas's plot of betrayal. He revealed it to the entire group, but it was too late. 
Judas stormed out, and seizing the moment, he swooped in and took full possession of him. From this point on, nothing else would be left to chance. And oh, what a moment that had been. When a few hours later, he had come face to face with the king once more, of course in disguise. But possessing Judas, he had looked the king in the eyes, and oh, how sweet the kiss of betrayal had tasted on his lips. His vengeance on the king himself was finally taking place. Oh, how he had gloated as the false accusations were hurled in the kangaroo court. Oh, how he had exalted as the whips cracked across the king's back. Oh, how he had laughed as the cruel Roman soldiers made an utter mockery of him. Oh, how the blood and agony filled his hate-filled heart with such satisfaction. And oh, how the ringing of the nails being driven through his weak hands and feet thrilled him. Now the king would know how it felt to be cast aside like a filthy dishrag, just as he had been. He had been brought low, now the king would be brought low. He would pay in full for humiliating him before the hosts of heaven. His vengeance would be fulfilled. And there watching through the gloom, he heard the king's final cry. It is finished. And with that, he gave up his spirit. And died. And in that moment, in that moment, the devilish roar of exultation from the voices of a myriad of fallen angels reverberated through the heavenly realms. From the very pit of hell hell itself, it rose up. He had done it. Against all odds, he had killed the king himself. Checkmate, game over. At long last, victory was his. Conqueror of conquerors would now be his name. Gabriel and Michael would now have to bow before him. And the father? Oh, the father, he would be so heartbroken at losing his only son, his only begotten. Oh, most surely he would abdicate the throne now, just step aside and say, Lucifer, return. The next hours passed in a blur of exultation as the fiends of hell itself rejoiced. But Satan himself knew better than to let his guard down for too long. One could never be too careful when dealing with the king, dead or not. And so as they laid him in the tomb, he watched closely. He made sure guards were put outside so that no disciples could come in and fake a recovery. He could still see the twelve legions of angels with Gabriel and Michael at their head nearby. How powerless they must have felt watching their king die on the cross not able to fly to his aid. Oh, how they must have burned within. And now there was nothing they could do. It was too late. He was dead, buried, and in the ground. It was too late. Wasn't it? It had to be. Just then, Satan watched as the angels suddenly sprang to attention. Alert and in the same battle formation that he had drilled them in personally many ages before. Something was happening. Suddenly the earth began to tremble and shake. Rocks began to tumble and fly in all directions. The Roman soldiers tried to run but then fell to the ground as it happened. An angel broke formation. 
And darting down like a lightning bolt, he pushed aside the giant rock covering the tomb's entrance. The Roman soldiers, trembling in fear, fell to the ground, and immediately a dazzling burst of light shot forth. So bright Satan had to avert his gaze. He had seen this glory before. He knew what it meant. And then his worst fear was realized. For there stepped forth the king. He was alive. He was well. And in all of his glory and splendor revealed, he shot forth. Victorious over the grave and death itself. And Satan could scarcely believe his eyes. As all of his carefully laid plans had vanished before him in an instant. And suddenly and quickly the realization struck his heart like a dagger. This had been the king's plan all along. Not even death itself held any fear any longer. Its power was forever broken. And the humans, oh his oh so precious children, they were the recipients of this gift. And he, Satan, had played right into the king's plan. For in his attempts to secure victory for himself, he actually aided in securing victory for the king and all people who would place faith in him. Oh, he would never be able to understand it. Why, oh why, does the king love these humans so much? They constantly rebel, complain, turn to false gods and idols. Had they not just finished betraying him, mocking him, and torturing him? Had they not just killed their king and creator with their own hands? And yet, and yet, so great was his love for them that he had washed his own betrayer's feet. So great was his love for them that he willingly died for their sins on that old rugged cross. He went into the grave in Hades itself. And then using the Father's power to rise from the dead, he had done it. All for the sake of love. He would never understand it to his dying day. He would fight it to his dying breath, but he would never understand the Father. And my friends, let me tell you today, Satan and all of the forces of hell will never understand it. You know something today that they never will. You know salvation. You know Jesus as Lord and Savior. You are walking in the way of the Lord, and they never will. You have been shown a glimpse of something that they have longed to look into for the ages, but through their rebellion and darkness, their hearts and minds have been corrupted. Lucifer himself cannot understand what you know today. For the sake of love, Jesus overcame, and you are forgiven. Jesus did it. It is finished. Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 to 15 says this. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature, not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took them away by nailing it to the cross. 
In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. If you think Satan was humiliated when he was cast from heaven and God's presence, imagine, if you will, his humiliation when he realized that he had been duped. He had been played like a fiddle. He had fallen and played his part perfectly in the Father's will right from the very beginning. He was shamed before all the angels of heaven. And so what then shall we say in response to all of this? What can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Satan himself? Ha! He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Satan can stand before the very throne of God right now and point out the sin you committed just yesterday, and he'd be bang on. He's a a great lawyer. He could make a brilliant case against every last one of us, and he would be correct in doing so, myself included. But each and every time that he makes his accusations, the Lord Jesus steps in, our intercessor. And he says, with nail-scarred hands, I paid for that too. My blood covered that too. Yep, you're right about that, but he's covered and she's covered. That one too. They're all mine. They're covered under my blood. There is nothing that it cannot cover for those who come to me in faith. Jesus Christ who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. What then? Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, considered sheep as to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, Satan himself included. Neither the present or the future. Any powers, height or depth. Anything in all of creation will ever and never be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you living in that victory today, my friends? I pray that you are. Walk in that victory, not just on Easter morning, my friends. It is for the other 364 days of the year as well. This victory is for life, and it will lead us through to life everlasting. But make no mistake, though the devil has been disarmed, though his greatest weapon has been taken from him, he is still active, because in his, in his disillusionment, he still believes he can win, and we know he is alive and well in the world today. He is still using his other weapons against us, his other schemes of inflicting doubt, discouragement, division, despair, distraction. He's doing it all to try to keep us from now living out our victory in Christ. And that is why we are commanded, put on the full armor of God. Don't go into battle against him unequipped. Go in the power of Christ, for the victory has already been secured. More than conquerors, remember, we are just that. More than conquerors, what does that even mean? 
Here's what I've come to understand. This is what it means to be more than a conqueror. You see, a conqueror, after their great victory, what do they have to do? They have to now defend their victory. Alexander the Great, the greatest conqueror in history, or one of them, how long did he get to enjoy his victory? Napoleon conquered most of Europe in a very short amount of time. How long did he hold on to it? When a hockey team wins the Stanley Cup, how long do they get to enjoy that victory before they have to defend that cup the very next year and someone can take it from them? Conquerors? Hardly. For there's always the grasping and striving. Once you get to the top, you've got to fight to stay there. But no, my friends, Jesus' victory was one time for all time. There is no taking it back. It would be like if the team that wins the Stanley Cup this year, it's permanent. This is for keeps. We're never playing another one again. They are the conquerors. They are more than conquerors, for it is for all time. But that is a poor comparison compared to what the Lord Jesus has given to us. Leave today, my friends, as a conqueror in Christ, through Christ, by Christ, and live in that power today and tomorrow and until you see him face to face. Amen. Thank you, Father. You are so good. Thank you for being so good to me. Thank you that your promises are sure and you give us what we need when we need it. And so, Lord, as we thank you today, may we leave with gratitude sunk deeply within our hearts. And, Lord, may we leave with confidence that you, having done it all, we can leave today with full assurance that nothing ever can separate us from you and your love and that that makes all the difference. So no matter what we face in life from this day till our last day, famine, nakedness, hardship, or sword, persecution, financial bankruptcy, it doesn't matter because none of it, the worst thing we could ever imagine, Satan standing before us himself can separate us from you and your love and your salvation purchased for us. Wow. So what is left to fear? What is left to fear? There is nothing. It's gone, evaporated. We have nothing but boldness to go forth in your name, to live and obey fully, to give our lives wholly, completely unto you, to be used for your glory. Work it out through us, O Lord. Bless your people this day. Empower us, Lord, to be mighty warriors for you, that we can live out our witness in this community as conquerors. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask it. Amen.